Because as you hear the reading, you think, this isn't really a story you see in the kids' Bibles, is it? No, struck dead on the spot. Every kid wants that one. Okay, so let's open up in prayer as we uh, commit our time before God uh, that he would uh, teach us and encourage us through what might look like a very odd passage. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that we can gather together both as people who, who do know you and who are seeking to know you more intimately. Lord, we thank you that you have chosen and pleased to be a God who reveals himself to mankind. We thank you that you have revealed yourself in, in creation, in your word, and in the, especially in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we understand that all of your word is profitable, that we might be complete and equipped for every good work, we come with expectation before your word this morning, that even what might seem obscure and odd on the surface might be for the benefit of building up your people. Uh, so help me and help all of us by your spirit uh, to hear the things that you intended to communicate through this passage and that we might take them to heart and to apply them. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if I was to be a magician, and I'm not, my name might be the amazing Stephen, because Steve, I don't know why, doesn't seem to cut it as a magician's name. However, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to introduce to you the mildly interesting to my three-year-old daughter, Stephen. I have a matchstick. And I'm going to make this matchstick disappear. Boom! And back in. Wow! And as you're all there in amazement and watch me take off this matchsticky taped to the back of my thumb. But wait, there's more! Big budget item sermon this morning. I actually went out and bought a packet of crowns, $2.50, to make them disappear from the box. The amazing Stephen. <gasps> wow. And by the power of gravity, whoops, they fall back down again. Oh. That's one of the beauties of so-called magic, isn't it? You see it, and even though you think, I don't get what he's done except for the fact that I just showed you on both occasions what I've done. You know there's something more to it. There's something more than what you actually see. Everyone loves a good optical illusion, don't they? Or do they? If you're out running in a field and someone has dug a really big hole, covered it with thin sticks and leaves, and you fall down that hole and break your ankle, you don't go, ah... I love a good optical illusion. Got me. Now, often when people are talking about someone else, you hear them say this expression, I like them because what you see is what you get. In other words, there's something about us that likes transparency and sincerity, even if what you see and what you get isn't always good. Like there's some people who really don't particularly like Donald Trump, but they like the fact that what you see is what you get. We like something that's real and genuine. And fake can be destructive, even if it's a fake version of something good. Now, the reading that we've had this morning 
might seem shocking that a husband and a wife who charitably gave money for a good purpose were struck dead. Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote a sermon with a very compelling title called Men Whom God Struck Dead. Isn't that a catchy title? You think, that's a sermon I want to hear. And you look through the Bible of particular instances where God struck men dead. There's Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10 when they went into the Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle when they shouldn't have. There was... Uzziah, when they're taking the, the Ark of the Covenant, they're bringing it to Jerusalem, it gets a bit wobbly, and he touches the, the Ark where the presence of God was said to dwell, but they were told not to touch, he dropped dead. And Ananias and Sapphira were three of the examples that he used in that sermon. Even as a Christian, you're very tempted to ask, isn't that a bit harsh? Isn't that a bit extreme for what appears to be pretty petty things? And it seems fitting in a passage where people are struck dead for telling lies that I acknowledge that last week I said it was our sixth sermon in the series of Acts when it was seventh. Still here, it's all right. It was my sixth one, but Samuel did one as well. So we're up to number eight. So we've gone our way through the book of Acts where we've seen that God had promised that he would send his Holy Spirit. And he says, you will receive power when you receive my Holy Spirit and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we've seen how the Spirit did come with power, and at the point in which we're up to in the book of Acts now, we either have 5,000 or 7,000 plus people who have come to commit their lives to following Jesus Christ. As the Spirit came upon God's people, and they declared the wonderful things about what Jesus has done. But last week, as we finished off chapter 4... Some of you might have thought, why did those last final verses even exist? Verses 32 to 37 were pretty much a repeat of what was already said back in chapter 2, 42 to 47. And you could be tempted to ask, is Luke just padding it out because he's like, you know, got an assignment at uni, you've got a word count, you've got to get it within a certain word limit or otherwise you're going to get points deducted off? He wasn't assessed as far as I'm aware as he wrote this thing. But there's a purpose for the repetition, and I think there's a twofold purpose. Firstly, in both occasions, this description of the Christian community followed a time when it said they were filled with the Holy Spirit, the people declared the word of God to show that that the filling of the Holy Spirit was more than just people boldly declaring the word of God, but it had a profound effect upon the entirety of the Christian community as they were filled by the Spirit. But secondly... It showed that in that loving Christian community where we saw the sacrificial giving, where people were selling their own belongings to be able to meet the needs of others, we see the example last week of what that looked like in one individual, Barnabas. He sold a piece of land and laid all of the money at the feet of the apostles for them to distribute to help people as there was a need. And it kind of sets a scene for a contrast between what Barnabas did and what Ananias and Sapphira did. Our outline as we look this morning... One to six, his deadly error. Verses seven to eleven, her deadly error. Here's a cute little his and hers 
embroidered towel moment to put on there. And I was reading Spurgeon during the week and he says, put something in your sermon that people don't expect to shock him. So I've tired of the last one. Signs and wonders, the missing part of evangelism, question mark. So there you go. There's people who already have got their bags packed and think, see what he's going to say about that one. But firstly, his deadly error. The very first verse of the passage that we're looking at is the word but. Showing us that there is a contrast being made between what has happened beforehand, that is, the example of Barnabas, and what is about to be introduced with Ananias and Sapphira. Previously, Barnabas has sold the field and brought money and laid it at the apostles' feet, and now Ananias and Sapphira have sold some of their property and laid money at the apostles' feet. But what sets them apart is the words that and he kept back some of the money and only gave some of it at the apostles' feet. But when you think about that, if you're selling property, even to keep back a certain portion of it, there's still going to be a lot of money being given. And what we're about to see is they were under no requirement to give a single cent of it. So if they weren't required to give anything... Surely any giving's got to be a good thing. However, in Peter's response, shows us that clearly that it was not a good thing. Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Now, if you weren't familiar with the the story and the outcome, you might think, Peter's gone a bit harsh on him there, hasn't he? Like you can see there in verse 4, before the land was sold, it was theirs. They didn't have to sell it. And even after they sold it, it says the money was at your disposal. They didn't have to give a cent of it. Yet they still chose to give some, for a charitable cause. But the contrast and the connection made with Barnabas from chapter 4 is that Ananias and Sapphira are giving the impression that they are giving all of the proceeds of the sale of the property when they are not. Had Ananias and Sapphira sold the property, which they didn't have to do, And then came to the apostles and said, we sold it for this much, but we've decided we're going to give you this percentage of it for you to use as you would see fit to use. There would have been thanksgiving and celebration and they wouldn't have his, his death, her death, matching embroidered towels to go with it. The key word here is he kept back some of the money, which is more than just the notion of he retaining some of it. The only other time this word translated kept is used in the New Testament is in Titus 2.10 where it's telling slaves not to pilfer or to steal that which belongs to their masters. Or to give an Old Testament similar example, you could make an example of Achan in Joshua chapter 6 and 7. When you've got the, the encounter there at Jericho when they're marching around the city to conquer it and God says all of it is to be devoted to me to distraction 
except for the silver and the gold which is devoted to me, which will bring and place in the temple. Yet Joshua 7.1 says, But Achan took some of the things that were devoted to the Lord for himself. And the Lord's anger was against him. Now my guess is we read the wording here in the book of Acts, and it says, Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? that I think what has prompted them to sell their property was the conviction of the Holy Spirit to sell it all for the intention of giving it all. That the Holy Spirit had placed a good and godly desire on their heart, which somewhere along the line they had twisted for their personal gain. Maybe it's when they see Barnabas giving all they got and see the kind of credit they, that they give to Barnabas. Because you imagine that, if we sold a block of land or a house and property, which is a lot of money, and someone just gave all of that away, we'd, we'd probably think quite highly of them. And maybe they liked, I'd love for people to talk about me like that. Maybe they like to be seen as being sacrificial givers, but without the inconvenience of having to give up so much. But they are lying to the Holy Spirit who had prompted them to do such a thing, But they corrupted that thing. Peter said to them, Why has Satan filled your heart? The one who lies, the one who deceives, the one who corrupts. Because as we think about sin, I think it's fair to say that all sin is a corrupted version of something which God has given for our good. I can't think of any examples where something which is sinful is not something which God has given in a different sense in a good sense, in an honouring sense, being corrupted for a dishonourable use. So the sin wasn't that they didn't give everything that they got for it. We've already seen they didn't have to give a cent. The sin was they gave the deception, the implication that they were giving all, as they desired the esteem and honour of mankind more than following through the conviction of the Spirit. But there's more contrast between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira than just the percentage of which they handed over. The context for Barnabas in his generous giving was the spirit-filled Christian community and saying this was one of the implications of it. So Barnabas was was the result of a spirit-filled activity. Yet Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira, why has Satan filled your heart? Barnabas was acting for the unity, love and the benefit of the community of the Christian family and for the glory of God. Whereas Ananias and Sapphira actually brought division, corruption amongst the Christian community for the glory of their own self. But it's interesting in verses 3 and 4, Peter describes this sin in two different ways. Firstly, he describes it as a sin against the Holy Spirit. And then the same event later, in the next verse, he describes it as being a sin against God. That it is, Holy Spirit is indeed equated as part of God. Now you could think, well, what about a sin against the apostles? What about the sin against the Christian community who could have benefited those poor people with some extra money to be helping out that they were holding back? I think a fair example to to compare to is David when he had his affair with Bathsheba and then arranges to get her husband killed in the war. 
As David thinks upon his sin, in Psalm 51, he says to God, against you and you alone have I sinned. I mean, sure, yeah, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against um, Uriah, her husband as well. But all sin is ultimately a failure to give God the honour and glory he's due. But that being said, it also affects others. One of the big lies as we start to really think as we're like individuals is we start to think that my sin doesn't affect anyone else. The way that which the Bible speaks about the Christian community calls it a body. And it says that what affects one part of the body affects all of it. We're kidding ourselves if we think my sin does not affect the greater body of Jesus Christ. And what was the result of this sin? In verses 5 and 6, if they ever appear, oops, I give up. They're in the Bible. You got it in front of you. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Oh, it's gone backwards, lads. Good on it. Now, that doesn't make for great bedtime reading with the kids, does it? It's not the sort of thing you're going to put into a book on parenting, is it? Now, when your kid draws on the wall and you say, Mela, did you draw on the wall? No, Daddy. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? <laughs> did you draw on the wall? <laughs> don't, don't do that, parents. Don't do it. Now, there's a big question that obviously gets raised. Why? such a harsh treatment. And I'm not skipping over it, we'll come back to that. But it's one thing which is pretty obvious, it says, and fear fell upon all of the people. Of course it did. Some guys been a little bit dishonest and they're struck dead, I'd be a little bit concerned, wouldn't I? But what about Sapphira? Now we already read back in verse 2 that all of this is done with her knowledge. So we look at her deadly error. Everything happened so quickly for Ananias. Like it says that he was dropped dead, he was buried, before his wife had even known a single thing about it. Then three hours later, she comes on the scene, equally guilty. We're told that she was, was in full knowledge of what, what had happened and what they'd conspired to do. And even though she's equally guilty, Peter gives her a chance to, to be remorseful, to repent. And says in verse 8, did you really sell your property for this amount? Which also helps make it clear that what the sin was, was they had communicated to the apostles a set amount and said, this is the amount that we sold the property for. And so she asked, as far as this what you sold it for? This money you gave to us, is that the, the amount you sold it for? And she says, yep. She continued, even when asked, to promote the lie. So Peter asked, why? Why would you conspire together to test the Holy Spirit? Just like your husband was carried out, you're going to get carried out and you're going to get buried. And she does. She drops dead, they carry her out and they bury her. 
happy times. You know the old saying, you hear people talk about marriages, they say, the couple who prays together stays together. Here's one for Ananias and Sapphira, the couple who lie together die together. Don't believe you can buy that one down at Kurong. Don't think it's too much of a market for it. But why such a seemingly extreme response for something to which to us looks pretty fickle? Should we expect a drop dead if we give a slight bit of false information? During the week I rang my parents and just in the silliness of the moment, Dad answered the phone and I'm like, hello, have you got solar panels on your roof? Um, so there you go, I've... I've been deceitful, I've misrepresented that I was somebody that I was not. And Dad reciprocates. He says, yeah, I've got a roof, a whole house covered with them, I can't get enough of them. In other words, he, he was trying to, presuming I was selling solar panels, and he was saying, I've got no need for them. Both of us misrepresented. And luckily, both still here. In the sermon that Donald Barnhouse gave that I talked about, Men God Struck Dead. I love that title. He looks at these events and highlights that every single one of them happens at very key moments. Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10 who went into the Holy of Holies was that right at the beginning when they'd established the tabernacle, the place where God's dwelling presence would dwell amongst his people, And it was right at the beginning of his presence amongst his people. And he was showing that you can't just approach me in any way. I am the perfect and holy God. Uzziah, the guy who's who's got the the ark's got the wobbles as they are bringing the ark, which had the presence of God, into Jerusalem. And he settles it so it won't fall off, struck dead. Again, a significant time when the presence of God was, was coming represented in the ark to Jerusalem and was followed by that wonderful promise to David that one of his sons would sit on his throne forever. And now we see the early days at the beginning of the church where God was pouring out the things that he promised through Joel chapter 2, the coming and the age of the Spirit. And each of these significant times where God is manifesting his presence with his people in a new way, he makes it abundant and clear at the beginning that I am the perfect holy God. Even my people cannot approach me casually and irreverently. And as you read, people, fear fell upon the people. They certainly got that message. God is also showing us something deeply about his holiness and how we relate to him. But an interesting factor is in pretty much every one of those occasions, as far as we can tell, we can presume that these people were actually followers, believers in God, that he did these things too. So it wasn't just God's wrath generally against bad things, but specifically a reminder to a people who were his that you do not just approach me casually and in any way whatsoever. I am the holy and the righteous God. And if you have an understanding of his holiness, his purity and his righteousness and we see how holy he is in events such as this, then we've got to ask, how on earth could I have any access to this God? Nothing I do is ever going to be good enough. 
And it reminds us that we need someone else. It's the very reason why Jesus came, the only one who lived in perfect obedience to God. And he came for the express purpose of bearing our punishment of death on our behalf so the offence of our sin before God could be dealt with and so that we could receive the blessing of a relationship with him, to be his children, to have an eternity with him. When we look at these things and all we think, God, you're harsh, we fail to see the holiness of our God. Now the focus changes a little bit in verses 12 to 16 with my intentionally provocative title, Signs and Wonders, the missing part of evangelism. I was actually going to tee up the elders to let them know what I was going to say so they weren't sweating at the moment. I haven't done that, so sorry, Samuel and Ray. Signs and Wonders have come up a few times already throughout the book of Acts, but we've kind of just briefly just brushed over, never really taken any time to deal with it. But when you read through verses 12 to 16, you've really got to think, what do I think? What am I going to do with these words? So let me just read them with you now. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now none of the rest dared to join them but the people held them in high esteem and more than ever believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. So that even carried they even carried out to the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. And as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and all those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. What do we do with that? Is there a connection between signs and wonders and evangelism? You see there in verse 12, it says, signs and wonders were being done regularly. And then verse 14 says, more than ever, believers were being added to the Lord. And then it goes on to say that everyone was healed. So should this be our regular expectation? Or is there something specific to this context that we need to take into consideration? John Wimber was certainly convinced there was a connection between the two. If you've heard of John Wimber, who is famously connected to the Vineyard Church movement, he wrote a book called Power Evangelism. And the basic premise of his book was this, that evangelism is most effective not only when the truths about the gospel are communicated, but when people have a power encounter with God. Or in simple terms, he says, miracles dramatically boost evangelism. Now, those of you who have lived here for a little while would have seen the Jesus tent that often gets sent up here in Queen's Park. I've spoken with the guy who runs that particular event and John Wimber's book was the primary influence towards him running those events. However, there's a couple of things we do need to consider. Firstly, think about Jesus' ministry. Jesus did more signs and wonders than anybody The crowds of masses were amazed. But a very, very, very small amount entrusted themselves to him. And if Jesus, who does abundantly more than I ever will do, doing all these things, 
what didn't get so many come to faith in him, then maybe I shouldn't have a similar expectation that I would have miracles galore and evangelism success galore. But to come back to John Wimber's book, that book draws very heavily on the book of Acts and particularly some of these things that we've already looked at. For example, Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, we see you know, the things that happened there and he says, look, there's an example. Signs and wonders happened and 2,000 people came to faith. Or in the chapters we've just covered, there was the healing of the man born lame and then 5,000, either more or 5,000 total, were followers of Jesus Christ. The only problem is, when you read through those passages in Acts, it's not the signs and wonders that gets people to say, what shall we do? How do we respond? It was when the people were filled with the Spirit and they proclaimed the wonders of who God is and what he's done in Christ. So the entire premise of John Wimber's book is based upon a very poor interpretation of the book of Acts. Both in Jesus' ministry and throughout the book of Acts, the miracle's role primarily is to authenticate the speaker. But it is the content which brings conviction of sin and draws people to, to repent and come to believe in Jesus Christ. It's also worth noting in the book of Acts, it's primarily the apostles, with the exception also of Philip and Stephen. So even in the book of Acts, where these things seem to be more concentrated, it doesn't come across as being the everyday actions of the everyday Christian to be involved in such things. Or even if you look at the big picture of the Bible, as to when miraculous type things happen, you always see the times when they are most concentrated are at significant moments in God's plan of redemption. Like when God is calling his people, Israel, out of Egypt to be a people for his own possession, you see masses of signs and wonders. When Jesus comes into the world as the saviour of the world, we see masses of signs and wonders. When God has sent his spirit upon and forming his church, we see a lot of signs and wonders. But the only next big thing in God's plan of redemption is the very return of Christ. So do healing still happen today? Well, of course they do. God's still God. Does that mean 7.30 this Wednesday night we should have the Eastgate Healing Night? No. It's not my job to say at 7.30 on Wednesday night God must heal anyone who turns up to a building. It's God who decides who heals according to his purposes, not me. Should we pray for healing for one another? Sure, of course we should. Nor should we be surprised if God grants those prayers. But, nor should we be frustrated with God if he doesn't. We acknowledge that he is all-powerful, that he could, but we acknowledge that we don't know the mind and will of God. We bring them before him knowing he could do it, but we leave it in his hands whether he does or he does not according to his good purposes. So to answer the question, is it the missing element in our evangelism? You can wipe the sweat out from under your armpits, Ryan Samuel. No. The gospel message itself is the power of God for salvation. So what do we make of Acts 5, 1 to 16? Because you and I might never have or ever be in a position where we're going to sell a bit of land or a house 
and donate it to charity, particularly in the economic environment which we live today. So does this mean you think, oh, well done, Steve. That's half an hour of my life. I can't get back. I could have watched a quarter of St Kilda playing AFL and had something really exciting to watch like that. But if we believe that all of the Bible is profitable as it claims to be, then there's got to be something more than just the application of buying and selling stuff. Because even as we look at this passage, the central focus wasn't on the actual buying and selling. The central issue was more about motive and deception and corrupting a good given desire in a way for personal gain. And I wonder, is it possible that we could do something that has all the appearance of godliness and holiness yet still be equally evil? The simple answer is yes. It's a matter of evaluating our heart in anything we do and ask, why am I doing this? Remember, if you were an onlooker, you saw Barnabas, you saw Ananias and Sapphira, what they did looked exactly the same. Yet one is commended as being a good example and the other as a terrible example. Now, the people around you, they can't look at your heart. They don't know your motive. Only God does that, and he does do that. There's nothing hidden from his sight. Our heart motive in everything will either be to please ourselves, to please others, or to please God. And the countless godly-looking things that we could do that are actually being done for the purpose of drawing attention to ourselves or to, to please others. I mean, after all, think about some of the ways Jesus criticised the Pharisees for the ways in which they prayed and they fasted. The praying and the fasting themselves were good things. But he says, if you're doing it so people think, oh, look how good and godly they are, he doesn't want a bar of it. It's funny when you hear about research about tithing and offering to a church and research finds that if you have the open plate thing, people give more because they care about what people see, what they do. They'll put more money if people can actually see how much is going in it. If you're visiting, I'll let you know we don't pass a plate around open or closed. But sometimes we do things. And they could be either way. No one else knows our heart. Now, a lot of you know that at the end of last year, I was greatly convicted about a desire to reach the 14 houses around my own house. And I talk about that quite regularly and publicly. Because I want to encourage all of us to think of even Steve as an introvert is doing these things. This is who we are called to be on mission with God for his glory, for his good purposes. But those same things, same words, could be either done with a motive to encourage others or to give thanks to God. Or they could be said in a way to say, look at me. Look at what I'm doing. And you wouldn't know if there was different. They wouldn't sound any different. But when we think about this, whoever I am seeking to please in my actions is an indication of which relationships I value the most. Think about that. Every decision you make, think, for whose glory, for whose honour, for whose pleasure am I doing this for, is an indication of whose relationship I value most. So if during the week I get an email from someone in Nigeria that says, Steve, I listened to your sermon on Sunday, absolute rubbish. It's 
probably not going to bother me that someone on the other side of the world that I don't know thought it was rubbish. But if, on the other hand, I'm driving home with my wife and Sarah says to me, what went wrong? That was the worst sermon I've ever heard. Then that might have a little bit more impact on me. Now, before I was a Christian, the opinions I treasured most were my peers and my friends, as most people do. But when the Almighty God, who I was hostile towards, who I didn't honour in the slightest, sends his son into the world to bear the price of my sin so that I can have the blessing of a relationship with him and eternal life and not suffer the consequences from my own sin, then I have entered into a relationship which changes, which is of a higher priority than what I had before. It would be stupid to continue to live for my pleasure, to please others. Paul says it just doesn't make sense to say that you are a servant of Jesus Christ In Galatians 1.10 he says, For how? For I'm now seek, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So often we hear a message that talks about how we are to live as Christians. Our first thought is, well, I better do something about that or otherwise people are going to think badly about me. That's not the right response. It doesn't matter what the people around you think about you. It matters about the one who judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That day by day we are living for the joy and for the pleasure of the audience of one person. How about we think, what I have learnt, I'm going to do this for the sole purpose that it will bring joy to my wonderful saviour who gave himself for me. It causes at times to pray, God, search me. Show me when I've got bad motives. Keep me from having bad motives. Help me to live for your glory alone. And even if the whole world hates me, may I live to please my Saviour who gave himself for me. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cherished title it is to be one of your children. And not through any work of our own because we can see that our best works would never bring us into your presence, ever make us right in your sight. But through the completed work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Lord, help us to not fall into the temptation of doing things wanting the honour or the prestige of the people around us. But rather to walk in humble obedience before our God for your, for your pleasure, for your joy, for your glory. Help us to be transparent, including in our failings, that our Christian community might represent your grace, but also your lordship. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.